Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you all to Oxford today. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, we are here, as you know, to mark the first anniversary of the revolution made by millions of Egyptians last January, and arguably by Tunisians and older generations of Egyptians and Arabs before them. And as academics just have to do uh, with even the most sublime moments of human experience, we're here to dissect that revolution, critically and rigorously. We're lucky to have such a distinguished group of scholars and academics and uh, activists to do that with today. And as a result, I thought I'd start by suggesting uh, three premises that might inform our discussion this weekend. The first premise is that we have seen a revolution and that this revolution continues. Mustamirra, as they say in Egypt. The second is that its basic quest for bread, freedom, and human dignity, as the chant went, is one we all share and can support. And the third is that self-reflexivity and feedback has been a mark of the revolution's successes so far, and so our critical engagement is the best response we can offer to an event of the magnitude and human cost of the Egyptian and Arab revolutions. The question does spring to mind, though, why now? Why meet for a scholarly analysis of a revolution that's visibly in progress? How can we talk about the writing of a political history when it's changing every day? It's true this does pose some challenges. Um, most obvious is our closeness in time and for many of us in space to Egyptian events. We might be stuck in a moment and it's moot. Many moments have yet to happen as the presidential elections next week um, loom and remind us. And in this context, it is difficult to discern patterns and trends, and sometimes even harder to explain them. Another problem is that we know that the sources uh, of information that we can access are restricted, either by practices of censorship or self-censorship in the media, in uh, polls, um, and in interviews. Meanwhile, other sources and voices are gone forever, from the protesters who were killed or otherwise silenced, to state security files that were shredded last uh, February and March, uh, to CCTV TV tapes of Tahrir Square that were recorded over last year. Most shadowy of all, perhaps, is the role of foreign players in Egyptian affairs, whose workings are opaque and whose archives will be classified for several decades. We're forced here to track bilateral and international relations in which the tiniest changes might echo loudly today, but whose longer-term significance we may find difficult to estimate correctly. So in these circumstances, we must acknowledge the fragility of our conclusions. But moving on, and trumping these caveats for me, and I think for all of us today, uh, is the value of seeking those conclusions, of engaging with history as it unfolds. And there are three reasons I'd like to talk about Firstly, there is the moral responsibility that comes with studying any social science, and particularly for us in an area fraught with colonization, authoritarianism, and poverty, yet also so vibrant with resistance, social solidarity, and resourcefulness. We academics exist within structures of power and knowledge making that enable us to influence significantly the way in which policymakers, journalists, and big business deal with the people of the area we study. In this case, a whopping 85 million Egyptians. Um, when we talk about hegemonic discourses and practices, there are people on the receiving end and on the subverting end whom it's important that we commit to. 
in Oxford University in the educational establishment of an old colonial metropole, this commitment can have a profound impact. And this is the case in other Western universities. We think of Howard Zinn, we think of Edward Said, we think of Terry Eagleton, we think of some of my uh, colleagues here today. And in the national universities of Egypt, uh, academia with a public conscience has seen teachers and students shape or contest official policy for decades. Here we remember <coughs> Tahasin, the former rector of Cairo University and later Minister of Education. We remember the student movements of the late 60s and 70s, and the 9th of March movement for the independence of Egyptian universities, which many of you know was born in 2004 and flourished in the anti-Mubarak movement. The second important reason to study the Egyptian and Arab revolutions right now is that they sparked a revolution in the academic field too. And I think we should seize this opportunity and push that revolution forward. Critical theorists have shown us the way in which fields like international relations and Middle East studies have long been molded by the foreign policy directions and selective funding uh, in certain core states, core states in the world and core states in our field. But the force of the Arab uprisings, just as it removed obstinate dictators, also deeply destabilized certain received wisdoms that had continued to be recycled in certain parts of our field. Nevertheless, the academic community has also encountered a counter-revolution of sorts. Alongside the initial celebration of the sophistication and pluralism of Tahrir Square and the feeling of vindication of anti-Orientalist scholarship, there has also emerged a counter-discourse about the threat, the looming threat of political Islam, about the superficial nature of change in the Arab world, and about the irrelevance of Palestine and pan-Arab phenomena to these uh, waves of uprisings. Whatever your take, I believe that amidst this rush to define and dismiss, we do not have the luxury not to engage. Now there's a third rich potential in studying the revolution in its first year. Uh, unlike with earlier periods we study, and that I have studied, uh, today in the world of instant media coverage and social networking, we have no shortage of sources. We do need to devise systematic methods to keep track of them and of their reliability, but they remain a treasure for scholars. This explains the multiple archiving projects that have sprung up around the Egyptian revolution. There's one at the official level of the National Archives in Egypt, there are several at the Egyptian universities, and there are some online and some, of course, in people's homes. Our position so close in time and space to events can be turned into an advantage. We know the media and political scenes around us. We can read the text and the subtext. And when we wish, we can go and get direct testimonies. And it's exciting that the new literature on Egypt has begun to reflect this and has begun a recentering of the Egyptian people. There's been a gradual move away from elite uh, discussions and discussions of endemic authoritarianism and a turn towards social movement theory and studies and history from below. So in fact, when if not now should we scrutinize the changes and also the continuities in today's Egypt? The issue then becomes how to navigate these problems in our discussion. And in order to do justice to the complexity of this revolution, our gathering here will try to cross over several boundaries, those of geography, those of discipline, and those of types of political engagement. And here it's worth touching on why this conference is looking particularly at Egypt amidst the wider scholarly debate on the Arab revolutionary phenomenon of 2011. 
Well, firstly, we have often heard the phrase, Egypt is the natural leader of the Arab world. Whatever we make of Egypt's role through the ages, many agree that at this moment, the fortunes of the Egyptian revolution are vital to those of its sister uprisings across the Arab world, and that trends in Egypt have always echoed loudly beyond its borders. That's one thing. The second thing is that considering the Arab dimension, as many have done over the past year, is relevant, and indeed it's refreshing. But it can also emphasize macro processes or themes that may appear to pertain to any revolutionary situation, but may play out differently across different cases. As we know, the best and hardest comparative work comes out of detailed case study research, followed by standing back. We're going to try here to start that process by burrowing into the Egyptian case, crucially with Egyptian scholars and activists, so that the themes that are critical to Egypt emerge for us from the undertaking and are not predetermined. Those which emerged from our initial call for papers range over six areas, preludes to the Egyptian revolution, its movements and mobilization, its art and its sense of humor, the impact it had on law and the state, the negotiations of public space that we've seen since, and its repercussions on the international scene. Now, I know I've gone on for a bit, but I'd like to attempt to prepare us for these conversations in, uh, in the spirit of collecting a sort of first anniversary diary of the revolution. So I thought I would attempt to take us through some of its milestones so far, to jog our memories, but also to get us thinking about issues of selectivity and omission, and this idea of the fortunes, the changing fortunes of the revolution. It's also an opportunity to bring in the very special visual dimension of the Egyptian revolution. I'm trying to go back to the beginning. So here we go, a year and a half in five minutes or three. Um, I hope you will enjoy these slides. So in January, we had seen the flight of Ben Ali from Tunisia, followed rapidly by calls to protest in Egypt on police day, January 25th. Participant groups included centrist coalitions, uh, leftist Marxists and young Muslim brothers, laborers, peasants, students, football supporters, and many others. We soon saw the Republic of Tahrir Squares springing up across Egypt over 18 days. And in February, Hosni Mubarak and his last government were toppled. And the new prime minister and foreign minister were actually suggested by representatives of the youth in Tahrir. In March, the ruling military council launched the fated transition with a constitutional referendum and a timetable for six months. It also released members of Islamic Jihad from jail. March also saw a Coptic-led demonstration as individuals and groups broke with former molds of political structures and representation in Egypt. In a similar vein, the Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party was formed in March, but by June, several young Muslim brothers and their fellow activists from other movements formed their own party, for which they were expelled. In early April, National Friday demonstrations which were calling for Mubarak's trial were joined by eight military officers, and they too were punished. In May 2011, this is literally a year ago this week, Cairo was rocked by million-strong marches in solidarity with Palestine. 
But the same protests also chanted for national unity after a Muslim and Christian family's feud had ended in the burning of a church. This combination of domestic and foreign policy demands was a feature of this early period. In July, an important reoccupation of Tahrir began, this time in the blazing sun. Several groups were contesting the military's timetable for transition. They demanded what they called the constitution first, namely that it be written before the parliamentary elections. And this was opposed by the Islamist parties, which became a theme. Also in July, police officers in Suez who were accused of killing protesters were acquitted, marking a trend that continues to today. In August, Mubarak and his entourage finally went on trial after pressure from the July sitting. And millions watched proudly what they called in Arabic the trial of the century. Public attention then switched back to Israel after its raids on the border in August had claimed six Egyptian soldiers' lives. Mass protests at the embassy saw the Israeli flag taken down and the wall around the embassy demolished. In September, the military arrested demonstrators and declared the emergency law reactivated. Its head, General Tantawi, then went to testify at Mubarak's trial, saying he knew of no orders by Mubarak to open fire on protesters in January and February. Tantawi then announced the elections for the 28th of November. In October, state violence peaked with an attack on a Coptic-led demonstration which killed over 25 people, causing nationwide anger. More attacks on protesters in November triggered a revival of mobilization reminiscent of January. This period saw the making of new heroes and new symbols, which you can literally read and see around Cairo and Egypt today. This mobilization was then diffused by the, the election process, though perhaps temporarily, because in December, army violence against women protesters in particular caused renewed outrage. And this generated the national campaign known as Kezibun, or Liars, which was a reference to the military council, in which volunteers set up screens in public to broadcast their own news and to subvert official mouthpieces. Amidst this repression, the Muslim Brotherhood's party had not suspended its election campaigns and swept the polls, they swept the polls to dominate parliament, which had its first session on the 23rd of January, 2012. On the 25th of January, millions marched in commemoration of the one-year anniversary of the Egyptian revolution, but there were divisions between what we might call a conciliatory, predominantly Islamist trend, and another trend of different stripes which repeated the revolution's early demands. In February this year, a call for a general strike was met by students, more than workers, whose strikes, as we will hear, are frequent, but are organized more locally. There followed the Port Said disaster, in which young politicized football fans known as the Ultras were attacked inside a stadium under police watch. In March, the constitutional drafting process was undermined by the self-appointment to the committee of a majority of Islamist representatives. Since then, presidential candidates have begun discussing their programs, to much fanfare in Egypt, while the public attempts to gauge the military council's preferences, and while the military, in turn, continues to put down public protests, the latest being the one, the sit-in that took place outside the Ministry of Defense the other month. 
Next week, voting is scheduled to begin to choose the next president after Hosni Mubarak. And that is where I will leave you now. Uh, I know I've gone on a bit, but I hope that these images have helped get us all in the mood and reminded us all of the issues that we will be discussing over this weekend. Um, and on that note, it's my pleasure to welcome our first panel, chaired by Dr. Louise Fawcett, on the preludes and explanations of the Egyptian Revolution. Thank you all for being here.